0: Previously, on The Tony
1: Kornheiser Show.
2: F.A. me? No, F.A. you. That's so funny. (laughs) Only real upset is a 16 versus a 1. Rock, chalk, gluck. This is the Cigna read. Arizona, I'll take a box of that. Higher Seeds Do Wear White. Oral Roxanne Roberts. San Fran Leibovitz's Kiln. Marquette the Bed. Marquette the Bed. (laughs) I stand in the pool, 42 long shot. Creighton Barrel Curio Capit and who is Tony? These are brilliant. The Tony Kornheiser show is on now. I think Marquette the Bed was Bill Isaacson. Oh really? Yeah, I think that was him. Well, yeah. And they did. They did. <laughs> and they did. And they went out the second merit. round. Um, I, I can't tell you tremendous amounts about the games last night because I only watched two and a half of them. On PTI, if anybody watches PTI, I basically picked four upsets. I said that the, the lower-seeded teams, not the number lower, but lower-seeded in terms of regard, all four could win. And I did say Florida Atlantic could win. And what I said about Florida Atlantic was two things. One, they've won 33 games this year, the most in the country. Well, now it's 34. And I felt it would be hard for Tennessee to get up for them after beating Duke, which to me is a signature win. Absolutely. I mean, you recruit on beating Duke. You don't recruit on beating FAU. Yeah, but
1: you thought beating Duke would give you the the blueprint to get out of that bracket, which became a lot easier. Uh,
2: And I I concede that. I just didn't think that psychologically that the players at Tennessee, highly recruited players, were going to be able to consider FAU a legitimate threat to them, and FAU beat them. Uh, And so now as a nine seed, they're into the Elite Eight, which isn't supposed to happen. Good for them. Probably get a lot more people going to school in Boca Raton. Just be careful because people my age are walking in the streets in Boca and Town. head Don't. south and head, take a dinner out at Gibby's. Yeah, try, try not to run us over. Yeah, there's a lot of takeout at Gibby's, although a lot of it stays there because people go to takeout and forget why they're there. Uh, I thought Michigan State was going to win. Mm, I did. Yeah. That was a great game. It really was. That kid, the 5'8 guard, he's great. Jay Billis said on the PTI show yesterday, you've got to let him take those shots because when he goes up in the air, he is looking to pass. Don't let him pass. Make him take the shot. And they didn't make him take the shot most of the time. But he played a great game. He, had, he just set the career record for assists. And that was a fabulous game to watch. Honestly, went into overtime. It was really fabulous. Very cool to see the way coaches
1: work with the timeouts and the way you you set up that pass. Izzo knows what yeah. he's doing.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and, and the sad thing about Michigan State, they didn't get a shot off. They're down three. And they didn't get a shot off. Yeah. So that was no good. The Arkansas game was disappointing to me. Arkansas was out of it early. I guess UConn's better than I thought. And I did not stay up for Gonzaga-UCLA. I thought Gonzaga would win. Um, There's a lot of threes that have kept going. A lot of threes have moved on. I don't know about twos, and there's two ones left, and you'll see them tonight. And they are the two best ones, um, Alabama and Houston. Purdue was not the best one. And Kansas was not. The Kansas had like five, six losses the whole year. That's all I, I can I say. thought you were going to go
1: back to the threes at the end of the UCLA game. How easy those looked. I didn't see the. UCLA. Oh, you didn't see the highlight
2: yet? No. no. They just go back and forth, and they're they're taking. Them I know as a kid made options. a three deep. A, a kid made a three to end the game, and nobody expected him to be shooting, and he didn't shoot with like one second left. He just in like twelve got, seconds. Got the ball, threw it up, and it went in. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I want to. I'll. I will, I'm telling you this. I'm looking at these for the first time. These are responses to the Willis Reed eulogy. This is probably the best word I could use. I am reluctant to read these things just because I don't want it to sound self-indulgent. But I'm just going to go through them, and we'll see. If it gets bad, just tell me to stop. Um, this from DG. I saw your segment on ESPN about Willis Reed. My Oh, no. He was sent to me by DG from his friend. My name is Richard Katz, best friend of DG. He said I should share my story about Willis. I, like you, first met him when I was at camp. Peter Barron, who listens to the show all the time and is the archivist of Camp Kiyuma, sent me pictures of Willis Reed at camp. <laughs> so he was there. I, oh, that's, I knew he was that's there. Fantastic. But I was not absolutely certain, and he was there a few times. I, like you, first met him when I was at camp. I'd been to my sister's engagement party, and my camp trunk was filled with food. Willis took a nap in my bunk, and when he saw the food, he called me Supermarket. Since my father, that's a great name, since my father had season tickets, he would take me to home games where I would go behind the basket and Willis would always come over and give me a hug. Fast forward to around 73, 74, I was in medical school in Oklahoma where Willis went for knee surgery. Hadn't seen him for a long time, probably his last game at the garden. So I went to his room where he was in traction and sleeping. I walked into the room. He opened his eyes, saw me and said, supermarket. That's unbelievable. Isn't that great? One very special moment with a very special man. Um, From Shad. Straight, no chaser condolences. From David Alexander in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for the memories of Willis Reed. May 8th, 1970 was my 18th birthday and my high school senior prom. I'd like to find my prom date today and apologize to her for picking her up late that night, just so I could watch the captain come out <laughs> onto the court. Two jump shots and the game was over. Here's yeah. hoping we don't have to wait another 50 years for the next championship. Maybe 60. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, the left two left-handed jump shots. He didn't score again. Uh, Dan Kelly, Bradford, Pennsylvania. I was not old enough to remember the 70 Knicks and very vague memories of the 73 team, but my dad recounted those years to me so many times and with such passion, I feel like I did experience it. Hearing you talk about those years brought me back to my dad and how he would rhapsodize about those Knicks teams. He would always laugh at the modern day game when each team has six assistant coaches. As you know, Red had no assistants. He had Jimmy (laughs) Workley's and he had Danny Whalen, the trainer. He had the PR guy in the trainer sitting on the bench. As you know, Red had no assistance, just Danny Whalen, and the trainer, sitting next. Only had one other guy, Jimmy Workless. And Red Holtzman, uh led five of the most talented players to ever share the ball. Phil Jackson was right. He would always mention Eddie Donovan, too. I think drafted Willis and traded for Dave DeBuscher. Thanks so much sharing about the Knicks and letting me h- hear my dad again through your voice, Dan Kelly in Bradford, Pennsylvania. From John McCartney in Chicago, I write to thank you for the thoughtful, respectful, and pitch-perfect eulogizing of Willis Reed on Wednesday's show. We all enjoy Garcia's zany humor, the one in a million counter stories, true or fanciful, Chessie's digestive challenges, good tips on Oregon wines, and the mystery of Carville's lexicon. (laughs) However, I believe many of us littles, especially those who are generationally advanced, most enjoy and appreciate the show when you, addressing a topic of importance or solemnity, don that virtual doctor of humane letters jacket and deliver exactly the right words with exactly the right tone and exactly the right construction, dignified. So right. A giant of a man, quiet, gentle, except on the court, straightforward, and always seemingly in control, with an understanding of self, always Reed Busher, never to Busher Reed or Frazier Reed, spot on, the leader. Never question from the moment the team came together who the leader was, and ballet, the description of Nick's style of play, I would add, respected. Ten-year career, five times first or second team All-NBA in a period when he overlapped with Russell, Chamberlain, Abdul-Jabbar, Wes Unseld, and Dave Cowens, and Bob Lanier, by the way. A native New Yorker of similar age, I too was at the Garden that night. The ticket, if memory serves, an early high school graduation present for my parents, purchased from a friend by my dad the moment he heard that Willis Reed would be unable to play game six in L.A. I don't remember my seat number section, but I clearly remember I was high enough up and at just the right angle to see down the tunnel leading to the Knicks locker room across the court. Thus, I had a few seconds head start in recognizing that Reed was walking down the tunnel in his white Knick warm-ups and not street clothes. I agree. The roar as he emerged was the loudest I've ever heard in an arena. As you may know, in the long history and multiple incarnations of Madison Square Garden, basketball mecca of the world, scene of heavyweight championship fights, concerts, festivals, and great events of all sorts, that single moment, not even an athletic activity, merely a proud man walking simply onto the court to help, his, help will his team to a long-awaited championship, was voted the greatest moment in Madison Square Garden history. I didn't know that. Oh, really? I didn't know, no, that. I didn't know that either. And the vote is correct, RIP captain. That's very, very nice from John McCartney. I got a note from Melman. That how great a player Frazier was. Frazier was a great player. He said, don't give short shrift to Frazier. Not giving short shrift to Frazier. When you have a basketball team, there is somebody who leads that team. There is somebody who is depended upon to be the leader, the captain, the glue, the person who stands at the top of the bridge and directs the ship. And that's what Willis Reed was. There were great players all around him. Bill Bradley is one of the greatest players to ever play in college. His Princeton story is unbelievable. There's a book about Bill Bradley called A Sense of Where You Are, written by an English professor at Princeton University, John McPhee. No longer with us, I don't think. It's a totally brilliant book. Um, I did a big story for the Washington Post about Bill Bradley. I revere Bill Bradley. Okay, Dick Barnett, one of the great shooters of all time. Just a fabulous spot-up jump shooter. Dave DeBuscher, as I said before, two-sport athlete, pitched in the major leagues and played baseball. And Walt Frazier. The Walt Frazier game in the finals is almost as good, if not as good, as the Magic Johnson game in the finals. These are the greatest finals games of all time. And I will sit here forever and ever and ever while there's breath in me and tell you that Willis Reed was the most important player and the best player for that team. For that team. And again, it was always Reed and... It was never and Reed. Mark Shepard, Rockville, Maryland. As a native Detroiter, I always rooted against all New York teams with one exception. When the Pistons traded DeBusher to the Knicks for Walt Bellamy and Howie Comives, Butch Comaves, still one of the worst trades in NBA history, it is. (laughs) I had to root for that Knicks team. DeBusher went to UD High and University of Detroit College and he could flat-out play. While your comments were spot-on, as usual, about Willis and the 70 Knicks, there's one significant omission. First man off the bench, Cassie Russell. That's right. Cassie Russell, like a three-time All-American in Michigan. Cassie Russell and Bill Bradley were two of the greatest college players to ever live. Uh, And like Willis, a class act. Like those fans who weren't there at the game, I had a tear in my eye when Willis limped out of that tunnel. One of the great scenes in sports history. I had no idea that, in fact, there was a vote like that. But that is a great vote. Isn't it? And by the way, just to remind you people... Ali Frazier won, I think, was in the Garden. Yes, I think I, you're Ali, right. Ali Frazier won, which a lot Let of people ch- think is the greatest fight of all time. Let me check that. You know, I think that was in the Garden. I think, from Gary Sims, I was heartbroken to learn of the death of Willis Reed. You mentioned on PTI last night. That was a couple of days ago. He played at your camp, Kewma, I believe. He also played at my camp, Echolock. Sure, on the other side of the lake. Echolock. He stayed overnight at a guest house. That evening, he joined us at the canteen. For those younger than 50... That was where the older kids got together for sodas and ice cream. He's a great storyteller, very approachable. When we told him about an eight-year-old camper who was a real pain in the rear, he got up and walked to the kid's bunk when he was fast asleep. Willis reached down, picked him up, pinned him to the bunk ceiling. He then said, "I am the devil." The kid did exactly what you would expect. Willis laughed as we helped him dry off. A memory forever. Fantastic. So I wanted to do that, um, and and you know, you are correct by the way. The Ali Frazier Ali Frazier was, won. Yeah, that's that was at, at the Garden. School. Yeah, come on now. It's at the Garden, you know, uh, been some great concerts at the Garden. Sure, you know, I w- wasn't the uh, the band the the for the final you know whatever the last. I waltz? don't know. I, I don't think, know. I'll but have uh, I mean, there've been an enormous amount of great things. So I'll read this one more thing from John Loman in Charlottesville, Virginia, and this is about America. Sorry, Winterland Ballroom, San Francisco. Okay. I couldn't okay. be more okay. wrong. This is about the song "America." Paul Simon, when he walked off to look for America um kathy i'm lost that i said as, as i knew she was sleeping i'm empty and aching and i don't know why oh. dear tony i discovered your podcast about six months ago and have been a dedicated listener ever since among the many things i enjoy about your show is the musical elements you integrate into the program be it the brilliant parodies by dan burn and others your generous exposure of countless deserving and often unrecognized songwriters and last but not least your uncannily accurate recitations of lyrics from classic songs of your youth that have made invaluable contributions to the american songbook Regarding the latter, I really appreciated your recitation on the opening verse of Paul Simon's America, which I agree is one of the greatest songs penned by one of the greatest songwriters of his generation. He won the first Gershwin Prize. The first prize in the United States of America ever given to composing songs, popular musical songs, went to Paul Simon. I believe we went to that when when there was a celebration. Did you come with me today? We saw Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel sing together. It's the last time it ever happened. Right? I mean, it was fabulous. Doing backup for these songs. Just standing there doing backup all night. Hello, Jackson Brown and Bonnie Raitt. (laughs) Right? They're doing backup. These kids are all right. As a folklorist, John Lohman writes, I've been blessed with the opportunity to interview many great songwriters, a craft that never ceases to impress me. While when analyzing great songs, we almost often understandably focus on their lyrics and melodic composition, what is often overlooked are songs' more subtle atmospheric elements, For me, what truly distinguishes this song, what lifts it from the status of a great song, that one is iconic and timeless classic, are two of the repeated measures of melancholic humming that open it. Hummed in Simon and Garfunkel's signature harmony, it sets the mood perfectly, instantly transporting the listener into that complex and paradoxical combination of boundless optimism and desperate longing that often inhabits the young. Wow, that's good writing. For me, by the end of those two simple hum measures, I've always felt like I intimately knew the narrator already before he sings a single word. Um... There are people in rock and roll who have that gift naturally. The Bee Gees are three brothers, Barry, Maurice, and Robin Gibb. The Beach Boys are three brothers and a cousin, Brian, um, Carl, Dennis Wilson, and Mike Love. That comes genetically for them. Paul Simon and Artie Garfunkel don't have that. Art Garfunkel, if you have never done this, if you have never done this, just listen to art garfunkel sing by himself sometimes he's the best yes. he's the best that that's why bridge over troubled water is just oh. it's the best yeah they both sing and then and then artie takes it home i mean come on come on you mentioned john loman writes after your recitation that you once wrote a paper about this song and i'm so curious about what he had to say about it who knows so <laughs> being that it's nearly impossible for me to recover papers i've even written from my graduate work in the 90s, I'm guessing your paper lives at best as a hard copy or maybe you no longer have a copy at all. In lieu of a proper reading, turning your podcast into an academic conference, sure to turn off even your most sympathetic readers. Do you care to give us at least the cliff notes on your thesis? It was terrible. I was I was an English major. I had an hour left before a paper was due. And I just thought I could, you know, I could be... Cooler than everybody else and write about a song. I was stupid. I so you, was you stupid. were playing cards all night? I Yeah. <laughs> gin. I was stupid. Don't take me as an example. I got lucky. Just as importantly, having learned through a Google search that they came from a small family-run bakery, first in New Jersey and later in Brooklyn. Have you ever tried a Mrs. Wagner's pie? Oh, of course. Oh, of course they were, they were wrapped up. They were in every grocery store in New York, Mrs. Wagner's pies. They were round, little, single-person pies. Did not you know, know that never happened They're had not of those. big pies. Do they still exist? I doubt that. I don't even exist. <laughs> Thanks for all you do, and be careful. His bow tie is really a camera. Appreciate that very much. We'll take a break. Um, who's first? Barry's Veluga. Barry's Veluga. When we return, I'm Tony Kornheiser.
3: I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast.
2: This is Sydney Cruz. We have played her work before. Her dad sent a song called May last month, and she sent the MP3 for two other songs that she has out, original composition lyrics. This is called Know You. This was released earlier this month, on the 10th of the month. (laughs) Yeah. How do you get a job? You know, what are you doing? Well, I'm working at the Giant, but I can sing. It's (laughs) It's amazing. <laughs> just unbelievable. It's amazing. They're all so good. We'll play another song by Sidney Cruz later, and at the end of the podcast, just listen on your own. She plays in Barry's Verluga. I, I'm going to start local, um, because I think that while it this is a local story, it has potentially national implications, um, the Ed Cooley hire, Ed Cooley, who was born and raised in Providence, Rhode Island, and upon signing a long-term contract, says what everybody says. This is my dream job. I'll never leave. I love it here. You're all my friends and family, and then leaves. Um, To take what would have been a better job, uh, other than the fact that in the last five years, Patrick Ewing couldn't have sunk the program any lower. I mean, it's at the bottom of the sea right now. It's not a great job now, but it could be. What do you think
4: of that hire? I think it's a good hire. I think it answers some of the questions that you had no idea about Patrick Ewing when he came in, the greatest player in yeah. program history. The only, you know, John Thompson, for all his greatness, never went to the Final Four without Patrick Ewing as his center.
2: One championship. Um,
4: but you, you had no idea whether Patrick Ewing could recruit a class, whether Patrick Ewing could draw up a play, whether Patrick Ewing could build a program, and six years later, the answer was emphatically, he could not. You, you know all those things about Ed Cooley, and you can pick apart his record at Providence. Um, you know Georgetown will play up the fact that he he made seven of the most recent nine NCAA tournaments and reached a Sweet Sixteen and won a Big East regular season championship. That the naysayers would say, well, two of those NCAA tournaments he got to the first four and lost. He he only won games in two of the seven tournaments that he reached. Um, so you can pick it apart, but in terms of what's a better job, Tony, Providence has had you know notable success going back to the 70s and certainly the 87 team coached by Rick Pitino with Billy Donovan as the, as the point guard. Um, but it's never been a national brand That's like right. Georgetown has. That's right. um, and is, is that brand hollow at the moment? Um, do kids grow up wanting to be Alonzo Mourning or, or Alan Iverson. I, I don't think so, but, but there's a way to restore it in a, to a height that I don't think is ever attainable at, at Providence. So I, I okay. there's a lot of work to do. Um, Ed Cooley is not an, you know, just a no brainer success, but I think it's a very, very solid hire and gives them a chance to instead of just being DePaul for the rest of time, um, build themselves back up into someone that can contend pretty regularly in a a very fun Big East conference.
2: A lot of people, when they coach at a new school and they have an introductory press conference, say, we're going to be good. We're going to make the tournament. We're going to make you proud. Ed Cooley said, we're going to win a national championship. That sets the bar pretty high, Barry.
4: Yeah, it it seems like (laughs) bluster. I I will say these things are so awkward, Tony, because they're like part pep rally and part press conference. Like they should have two separate events. It's, you know, they play the fight song and there are cheerleaders there, but the first few rows are reserved for nerds like me asking questions. So um, he really used it as a um, let's get everybody together behind this thing. I'm going to be on campus. I want to meet every student there. And and it was almost like um, he made a point of saying, I don't speak using notes and it gets to be a runaway train. Like why shouldn't they've won a national championship here? Why shouldn't I say that's what we're, we're going to do? Um, it definitely, you know, as I wrote, like he won the day and, and that's step one. Um there's a lot of days ahead with a lot of work. Um, a national title from back to back big E seasons in which your conference record is two and thirty seven is is a long <laughs> way off.
2: I'll just say this. What 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 is most notable about the Georgetown program right now, and Ed Cooley is a fine coach, and it's very, very reasonable to think he can resuscitate the program. I mean, I, I really believe that. Nobody goes to their games. They're playing downtown in a model that Dave Gavitt came up with 35 years ago. That was brilliant at the time and may not be brilliant. Now 2000 people go to their games like that school and all of its supporters have given up, right?
4: Well, there's that factor too, Tony, but I would say that, um, you're right about the model. Uh, you know, okay. So when you lose, people don't go that that's the fact of life. Um, But, you know, you're talking about a logistical nightmare if you're a student um, and you need to get you want to come downtown. It's not uh, you have no metro out at Georgetown. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just not you don't walk across um, campus and and go to the go to the game. You've got to make a very concerted effort to get there. You also don't have um, a student body that is. 30,000 strong, like a, um, a big state school would be. You don't have a centralized alumni base because, you know, Georgetown is a, a very elite a- academic school whose um, graduates don't all just stick around in the place they grew up. They they scatter around the globe. So to fill a 20,000 seat arena, let um, I me mean, put it this way. There's a reason that Cameron Indoor Stadium is 9,300 seats and will always be 9,300 seats because that, Alumni base, which is also scattered, um, couldn't fill twenty thousand right. uh, seats on That's a nightly right. basis. It's, it's a small school. Wake Forest doesn't have a twenty thousand seat arena, so um, it's a bad as a bad fit. Um, but I think if Ed Cooley can get it to start feeling. You know that the arena is half full, not half empty. Um, then, then he'll be do. He'll be yeah. have it pointed in the right direction.
2: Uh, Kelleher, of course, is a Georgetown graduate, and always tells this story that when a friend wanted to bust his chops, so he hadn't seen it in a while. He said, "Georgetown is that a four-year school yet?" That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. All right. Um, how about Notre Dame giving Micah Shrewsbury seven years? Who were they bidding against that they had to go to seven years? Doesn't that seem you know, like a lot?
4: It's a lot, but I also think that um, the, the buzz around that guy uh, became very intense, and especially for um, for a job based in the Midwest. He was a longtime assistant to Brad Stevens at Butler during the, yeah. the glory years and then went with Stevens to the Celtics. And um, my friend and colleague, Adam Kilgore, did a story on him last week. And, you know, it's one of those things where, you start calling around on a guy and you can tell how well respected they are by how quickly people call you back. And like Brad Stevens was on the horn in like five seconds saying like, Mm. uh, you know, this, this guy, how he has waited, how he waited that long to get a job like Penn state. I have no idea. And then Notre Dame, the consensus was, um, you know, he has all these ties to Indiana and the Midwest. And it was just, you know, if it's not the Hoosiers' job, that the Notre Dame job is a, is a perfect job for him. So seven years is a, is a long time, but I was surprised over the last month how much just general positiveness there was around him, and, and kind of this is way too late for him to have gotten an opportunity at, a, at such a good place.
2: So these are three big Catholic schools that we're talking about. One is Georgetown, one is Notre Dame, and now we have to talk about St. John's. Rick Pitino carries a lot of baggage. He also carries rings, championship rings from two different schools that nobody has ever done. He took three different schools to the Final Four, and he's going to be given whatever he needs at St. John's because there's Wall Street money at St. John's, right? You would not not be surprised at all if in two to three years he was in the Final Four, would you?
4: No, not because it doesn't take long to build a program you can get experienced good players very quickly because you don't have to sit out transfer now and he knows where all he knows everybody he knows where all the players are he knows how to talk up what st john's was i think st john's played only four games at madison square garden um last year where they had
2: alumni hall most of the time probably yeah
4: yeah and i think that patino will look at the schedule and say like yeah, we'll play two on campus, and we'll play 18 in downtown, <laughs> thank you. Um, right. And he will, he, his his name, his swagger, his accomplishments, yeah, the baggage is, is is certainly a thing, and you have to acknowledge it, but for that job at that time, they are a version of what Georgetown was, a, a shell of their former self. They tried yep. the Ewing route with Chris Mullen, and yep. he lasted even less less time than, um, than Ewing did. Um, that that couldn't be more of a perfect fit in terms of, I mean, he will win. That, I would Ed Cooley standing there saying we will win a national championship seems like absolute hyperbole. If Rick Pitino stands in New York at St. John's and says we will win here, that is spoken truth, I, I think. Totally, um, very, totally very believe that.
2: You've been, you've been running around lately, obviously, with the NCAAs and Nats Camp. You went to Nats Camp. What's the mood around Nats Camp?
4: Well, I was there before one of the young pitchers, Cade Cavalli. It's um, out, Tommy John. Tommy see oh, ya, see so, ya. So there's my philosophy, Tony. This year was if there's a reason to turn on the television, um, you know, once every five nights uh, because you're interested in the pitcher, then then that's good. And I thought that three out of the five nights um, when it was Mackenzie Gore, Cade Cavalli, and Josiah Gray, um, you might accomplish that. So there there goes you know a fifth of that theory. I, I do think they're generally um, not going to tune in
2: there. to see when Patrick Corbin gives up his first home run. You're not going to do that, <laughs> yeah, huh? I okay, mean,
4: you better <laughs> set your set your alarm because it could be early, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the other thing I would say, Tony, the takeaway from spring, and I don't know how much you've talked about this, but like baseball is a different sport than it was last October. Um, the the pitch clock has
2: I haven't seen it. Rate. I want to see it in real, you know, in a real season. I want to see it. It's,
4: unbelievable um the average spring training game a year ago was three hours the average spring training game this year is two hours and 36 minutes it is such a positive change because it cuts out nothing that you would miss guys like going to the rosin bags batters stepping out and you know if if the beer cutoff is in the seventh inning well it's a lot earlier now um because uh Mm. The seventh inning is on you before you know it. It's a a fundamental, fundamental change.
2: I'll get you out of here on this one question. It concerns me. Do you think the Nats will be sold this year?
4: I don't. I don't think they'll be sold. I mean, if this year means this season, I I don't think they will. Um, We are waiting to hear... Um, on a court decision in New York about um, revenue from TV. from mass. And, and that could give some clarity to Ted Leonsis, who's interested in, in purchasing the team, about what his he can expect from um, the Nationals' media rights. That's so in the weeds, but it's also so important. There is not a you know long list of people still in the bidding. It feels like Leonsis or bust. Um, I do think that when you get out of the season – which will probably be another hundred loss season.
0: Yeah. You,
4: you need clarity pretty fast because the general manager has a contract that runs through this year. The manager has a contract that runs through this year. They have assembled uh, a, the beginnings of a core that could be, you know, what their core was when they when they were winning all the time. Um, but they need to have direction. Can we pursue? the equivalent of a Jason worth for seven years, um, going forward. What, what can we do in terms of extensions for the players that we have here? Um, it's, there's so much on pause because of the ownership situation. Uh, I would hope that by October or November, we either know, yes, they're, they're full on going to sell the thing or, know they're retrenching and and trying to go forward um, and the Learner families would stay on board.
2: I enjoyed watching the World Baseball Classic, but every time Turner and Schwarber hit it out, I just said, my God, we could have had them. We had had
4: them. Had them. Thanks, Barry. Appreciate it, Tony. Thanks.
2: Barry's Reluga, boys and girls. That's a great column, by the way, in the Washington Post. For those of you, I always sort of think that I'm talking to people who live around the corner, but I realize I'm not. We'll take a break. Steve Sands is at the Match Play Classic in Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas. you know, got to ask him why is it in Austin, Texas?
1: Well, it won't be for much longer. What happened? I think the members overplayed their hands and wanted a few upgrades to the facility, but I'm not sure exactly what happened. I'll ask about it. Okay. Sands,
2: when we return, I'm Tony Kornheiser.
1: Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
3: This is the Tony Kornheiser Show.
2: Once again, this is Sydney Cruz. This is called Prisoner. You can listen to Sidney Cruz and not have to listen to me talking over her at the end of the show. In fact, if you had any brains, you would just do it now. <laughs> Let's go listen to Sydney Cruz and Prisoner why do people's dads have to send us their music <laughs> you No, know, why does that happen yeah. she's she's wow. great this oh. is fantastic Thank you, uh, the dog is barking because i think that we have ants in the house and we got the American Pest people to come, so could somebody find out if Carol's Ants? awake? Aunt Joni? Not Aunt Joni. It's the expired. answer here. Aunt Joni here. <laughs>
1: He's slouching. Steve
2: Sands joins us now. Um, Michael just read me a couple of quotes from Rory McElroy. I'm going to get to them really quickly, but I need to ask you this. This is the match play event that you're at. This is a sort of a weird event. Can you explain what it is, and can you tell me if players actually like
3: it? <laughs> well, it's different in that match play, usually you get a winner and a loser each day, and then you survive in advance, kind of like March Madness in, in the NCAA tournament. On the PGA Tour, they decided years ago to switch the format to Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday as group play, so today of those 16 groups of four players, only one player will get out of that group. Right. Yeah, so today is truly the match play that you're familiar with at Columbia or with your friends or right. wherever you play. Uh, as opposed to stroke play, so it, it, it turns into match play today for all the matches where people are still alive and can advance.
2: I I, I like watching golf, and I like I'm not, sometimes I remember and may not be true anymore that this was a 36 hole final and Kevin Kisner always won it, and I just said, what am I <laughs> doing here? <laughs> you know,
3: right? do I have that right? Yeah, well, <laughs> Kevin's been in the final three times. He won it once. He was a runner up twice. Um, Look, some people are built for match play uh, versus stroke play. Some people uh, don't love it. Um, I don't know how you wouldn't love it. Uh, match play is, to me is so exciting uh, compared to stroke play. Uh, you can't do it every week, right? Uh, but but again, today uh, when you start eliminating people, and then tomorrow especially when it gets to the round of it's just regular in quotations regular match play. You know, win or go win or go home. Uh, Kisner, Kisner's, he's still alive. He's one of those tough guys, man. He is a tough, tough guy to get out of this thing. But he's not as tough as Scotty Scheffler, Tony. My gosh, he's hes doing it again. He's amazing.
2: Scotty Scheffler's big, too, isn't he?
3: He's a big guy.
2: Yeah. The, he, uh, he looks like he could have played he, anything, and he decided at a very early age to play this. So I will tell you that, that I am interested um, because <clears throat> I know some members of the family in Denny McCarthy, who is a local for us and who Love went, it. he went to Virginia, right, Michael? He went to Virginia and he's been on a tour for a while. I don't think he has won yet. And we sort of, you know, how could he get into the Masters? Well, he'd had to get out of his group and this, that, and the other thing. And then, you know, we had this unfortunate thing on the first day where he's way up on Keegan Bradley. And br- I think Keegan Bradley birdies the last three holes to have something like yep. that. Do I have that correct?
3: Yeah, he, he birdies, uh four of his last five.
2: Yeah, and you should never lose that lead. You, you shouldn't. But but then yesterday, he plays Rory, and can you describe what Rory hit on the last hole?
3: I genuinely think <laughs> it's the greatest drive I've ever seen anybody hit. Um, now, you have to contextualize it a little bit. Is it the final round of a major? Uh, is it, you know, 16th, 17th, or 18th hole at a major championship when you need it? Um, you, you can think of a lot of drives over the years. Um, you know, Dustin Johnson at Kapalua, you know, came to mind, but that's Kapalua, and that's it's a different type of golf course, uh, different circumstance as well. Anhel Cabrera hit a great drive uh, at the 18th Oakmont. at Oakmont, yeah, uh, which I thought was the greatest drive I've ever seen under those circumstances. So I'll still take Anhel Cabrera, but the guys I was working with yesterday in the booth. So they've never seen a drive better. The, the tour average, okay, the PGA, these are the best players on the planet, Tony. The PGA tour average carry, that means carry in the air for a drive, is 281 yards. Okay? 281 yards. That's a long, long ways for a carry. Not, not, the, where the, not the
2: bounce. Is, but the carry. Just where it lands. First hits yesterday,
3: the ground. Yesterday, on the 18th hole, running McElroy hit a bullet. And it went 349 in the air,
1: <laughs> 188 ball on
3: speed. Fr- landed on the front edge of the green and ended up less than four feet from the hole. He never even putted for two because he didn't have to. Uh, and McIlroy won the match. And I-, I think it's the greatest drive I've ever seen, just because of the distance and the control and the accuracy. Circumstances dictate, I would say, that El Cabrera at Oakmont in the U.S. Open was better, but what McElroy did yesterday was literally astonishing to see it in person. It was amazing.
2: So let me go over this. How long is this hole?
3: Well, he carried it 349. It's a short par four. But it's... He carried it 349 to the front edge of the green. So the front edge of the green, let's say, is 248. is uh, 348. Right. And He carried it 349. Yesterday, the hole was back left, so let's say the hole was probably 365. 365.
2: And, so you're standing and at the and tee. He hit it
3: 360, he hit it 367 and a half.
2: Huh.
3: It was amazing. At the hole, by the way, it was, it was spectacular.
2: You're standing on the tee. It says, yes. when you look at the marker, 365 yards. Exactly. 365. If you're me, that's three shots. Okay. I mean, if you're a good player, it's two shots. But right. it's two shots. It's two shots, and the second shot, even if you're a good player, is going to be 80 to 100 yards, right? If you're a good player, 80 to 100, maybe 60 to 80. And he put it four feet from the hole. Now, if you're Denny McCarthy playing against him, you
3: tip your hat, right? I mean, what do you do, right? Well, here's what's crazy, Tony, is that the guys can't see the green from the tee. So McElroy had the honor. He took driver, and he landed it on the green, and it it rolled up there to about four feet. So he, he flies at 349 and gets it up there to about four feet. And he thinks he's hit a nice drive. He's hit a straight drive. He's hit a nice towering drive. But he has no idea where it's landed or where it's ended up. There aren't massive crowds at that point of the day because on the 18th hole, there are fewer fans in match play than there would Because be, it
2: doesn't get uh, there most of the exactly, time. Exactly. Right.
3: 15, 16, 17 is where the matches, you know, usually end. That's where usually where all the huge crowds are. But anyway, so it wasn't like some massive roar. So I'm in the booth and we're like, you know, we're just wowed by the entire thing. Smiley Coffin, who used to play on tour, was a winner on tour, is the walker for us yesterday. McElroy walks off the tee and says to Smiley, as they were going to commercial, Hey, you know, where did that end up? Smiley tells him, Smiley played on the PGA Tour. He won a PGA Tour event. He's a tremendous golfer. He says to Rory, uh, it landed on the front edge. And Rory was just like, get out of here. He's like, yeah. He's like, literally, get out of here. And he goes, no, it landed on the front edge. It's about four feet away. And Rory just started laughing. So when he and Denny started walking and got up to the top of the hill and saw Rory's drive, I mean, Danny just shook his head, and Rory, you know, just started giggling even, even louder.
2: He's the best driver in golf. I want to stress this, because a lot of times you look at athletes, and physically, they are very different than you. Rory McIlroy is about 5'10 or 5'11. I mean, I, he's, he's pumped up, but he's 5'10 or 5'11, and he kills it. He's not 6'5". He's not big like Rom is big. Not big like Ernie Els was big. He's normal, and he kills it. How does that happen?
3: Uh, He might be 5'10 or 5'11 in the program, but he's not 5'10 or 5'11 when you're measuring him. He's probably about 5'9, maybe Uh, even 5'8. I mean, he's his club head speed, was that Michael who said? 188, 189 club head speed. I mean, ball speed, club head speed, the, the, the amount of energy that goes through that golf swing is amazing. Uh, his stature is not big. He is not a big guy at all. I know he's fit, but he is not a big guy at all. I bet you he weighs 150 pounds. Um, it, it's it's amazing. I mean, I, I right before the drive, Sometimes this happens in TV, and you just get really lucky, Doug. You know this. But just before the drive, when we have all that time, there 32 matches, there were all done except for those two. So they were the only guys on the golf course uh, at the time, so we had plenty of time uh, to chat. Normally we're just going shot to shot to shot. And literally I said to Brad Faxon on the air, I said, you know, he's probably the best, if not the second or third, maybe the second or third best driver of the golf ball. His generation. Let's see what happens here. And then he drills it like that. It was, it was pretty wild, man. It was. I wish it was a Sunday at a tour event. And there were, you know, twelve thousand people on that hole. Uh, the, the place would have gone absolutely bananas. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, it's as good a drive as, as you'll ever see uh, anywhere, anytime.
2: I mean, Rory said the other day that he wants to win majors. He will be judged by winning majors. And he said if yep. they put in the restricted flight ball and they put it in at majors, he's happy to use it on the PGA Tour, even if some people think that may be a disadvantage if there's a local rule that you don't have to. He wants to do it because if it's in the majors, he wants to win majors. What do you think of that?
3: You know, he's on an island there, Tony. Uh, Almost every other player I can think of, maybe every player uh, at the highest level of the PGA Tour does not like the idea of rolling the golf ball back. I think McElroy... I've said this to you before. He's very thoughtful, a smart guy. Um, and he's not trying to buck a trend or be a contrarian or anything like that. He truly thinks that this is going to be the best thing uh, for golf, and, and so does the USGA and the R&A, the, the two entities who make the rules. I, I think Rory, look, Rory is definitely going to be measured um, by the major championships. He's 33 years of age, Tony. He hasn't won a major in nine years. Yeah. The 2014 PGA Championship, he won that congressional uh, in 2011 and then he won his fourth in 2014 so he won four majors in a four-year span uh, as far as years go calendar years and he hasn't won one since and let's face it in two weeks when we chat again on your show Tony and we're going to be talking about Rory McIlroy winning the Masters again this is his 10th opportunity or ninth opportunity uh to win the career grand slam so Rolling back the ball is something that you have to get really into the weeds for your audience as far as whether it's good or bad. The guys at the highest level can't stand it. Uh, the equipment ma- uh, people can't stand it. The Titleist, the Callaways, the, you know, the TaylorMades, those the companies that, that make golf balls, uh, they can't stand it. Nobody wants to bifurcate. Meaning, one of the beauties of golf is that you and Michael go play with friends at Columbia. And you're doing the exact same thing with the exact same equipment on the exact same type of rules uh, that PGA Tour players uh, play by. And nobody wants to split that up. Um, the PGA Tour definitely does not. But the PGA Tour and the PGA Tour players you know, and the equipment companies have to look after themselves uh, in this regard. It'll be really interesting to see how this all plays out. It hasn't been completed yet, Tony. Right. It just has been recommended by the USGA and the R&A. So... I don't think this argument is going to be even close to being done before this is implemented or if it's even tweaked a little bit by 2026.
2: Wow, that's a long time off. Thank you. Enjoy yourself uh, in Austin, Texas. Thank you.
3: You'll still be playing golf in 2026, Tony.
2: I sure hope so. Yeah, absolutely. I hope so. Steve Sands, boys and girls. We'll take a break. We will come back with email and jingle. I'm Tony Kornheiser.
0: This is The Tony Kornheiser Show.
5: Tony's mailbag Got your email, faxes And your notes Here comes Tony's mailbag Gonna read some For all of you folks
2: Thank you, Cajun. You want to do the Bethesda Bagel ad? Yes, Bethesda Bagels. We love them. You will as well. Just go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in, and you will be thrilled. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say, well, it's been building up inside of me for a while. I don't know how long. I don't know why, but I keep thinking something's bound to go wrong. But she looks in my eyes and makes me realize when she says, don't worry, baby. That's my favorite song of all time, don't worry, baby. The second Versus something like, I know I should have kept my mouth shut when I'd start to brag about my car, but I can't back down now because I pushed the other guys too far. <laughs> yes. um, or what she, uh, Something, 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 and it says, and makes me want to drive when she says, Don't worry, baby. It's 1963 or 1964. I don't know which year. I just, it's my favorite song of all time. It really is. It really is. Thanks to our guests today. Steve Sands, Barry's Verluga. Thanks to our sponsors, Priceline and Sunday. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or Odyssey. If you get the show through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. So one of
1: my music streaming services basically sends me a personalized playlist that's based on some of my listening habits, and I would just love it to uh, curate something based on the songs that you talk about, because I I always leave here thinking, I want to now listen to some more Simon
2: Simon and Garfunkel songs and add Don't Worry Baby, do it, so... Well, yeah, again, I mean, what the Beach Boys had that other people didn't have was that genetic component to allow them to sing in a a certain kind of harmony that you don't hear other places if Brian only, Wilson only I had three boys who could maybe i don't know well well you could <laughs> do that the band don't, you, don't you sing to the captain every night <laughs> every uh every night so maybe the captain will pick that up and have a great Running voice. to standstill and then hallelujah you know i mean that was lovely oh you sing hallelujah Leonard every Clone night song? and
1: every night he gets to choose if he wants me to sing i've heard there was a secret chord that and recently wait, wait, he, he gets
2: wants, to choose he's not even one he doesn't know this
1: is for the ha- the hammer oh, the okay, captain the just hammer. gets sung too okay yeah. Oh, Henry. so the hammer sings with you. No, no. He gets to choose if I'm if I'm singing it to uh, that Henry Hurd or that Walker Hurd. Oh, okay. Those okay. are their real names. All right. ER names.
2: Yeah. From Joe Pearson in Indianapolis. Okay, so all this talk about Rivian made me visit their website. I saw the truck. Oh, you did? Outside, Job the, done, outside the elementary I suppose. school. Wow. Sure, zero to 60 in three seconds sounds impressive, but they list the vehicle's wading depth. W-A-D-I-N-G. Wading depth at three plus feet. Three plus feet. Forget all those police warnings about not entering flooded streets, baby. I've got a Rivian. You're
1: talking about a duck boat. You know,
2: from Rupesh. From Sharma in Lebanon, Ohio. We're Don't we call him Rup? Rup. are we supposed to call him Rup? My brother-in-law Rupesh. is an there engineer is. for Rivian. I'm happy to get you answers to any questions you have. Here's the question I have. When can it be here? And what is the discount? Okay. Mike from Arnold, my day started off yesterday pretty eventfully with a woman to whom I'm related by marriage going into labor at 4.30 a.m. This would be our second child, so I was told to expect a somewhat faster labor than the 24 hours our first required. Is that true? Uh, Yes, but now the biggest question is, that's going to labor overnight like that, who's watching the big kid? I thought it was pretty nice that we would have a child born on the vernal equinox and start out their life on the first day of spring. Sure. However, things didn't move along quite as expected, and I realized we were going well past 3.20. I immediately realized our new baby would have the birth date of 32123. You can't beat that numerology. Yeah, it's a palindrome. <laughs> Didn't want to seem too gleeful as I was not the one enduring <laughs> at the, the clock. Labor pains. <laughs> yeah. So I kept it to myself. It I am happy to announce the birth of the newest little, my second non masculine child, Zoe Day McIntarget, at 427 or 32123. Big shout out to the labor and delivery nurses at Arundel Medical Center. You carried my family through what could have been a very difficult day. I'm eternally grateful. From Tom Opelt in Colorado Springs, Colorado, you are cordially invited to my wedding to the lovely Miss Brett on Tuesday, March 21st, 2023. 3 While not quite one in a million, ours is an unlikely story. 11 years ago, we were among a group of friends who attended weekly pub trivia every Thursday. As time went by, we grew apart and she moved away. Four years later in 2019, I was enjoying quiz at a different bar in town on Valentine's Day. Suddenly she approached and surprised me with a Valentine's card. I had no idea she was back in town and she had recognized me. We began a friendly rivalry between our two trivia teams and occasionally joined each other. A year later we started dating. We'd been engaged over a year and decided three twenty one twenty three would be a nice and memorable anniversary. Yeah, that's that's sort of like eleven eleven twenty two, which yeah. is in my life. We plan on having our first child on two twenty nine twenty four. I hear it's pretty easy to pick a date for that, right? <laughs> yeah. Just circle it. it's lovely. Um, from Barney. Attached is a save the date. Please join the woman I am not yet married to as we trip the light fantastic. I'm, uh, I thought it was trip the night fantastic. Maybe it's the light. I got tired of waiting for my funeral to listen to the Nighthawks, so they are playing Friday night for the rehearsal dinner. You, however, still open to my funeral, still on to open up my funeral. Someday, I'm sure you will talk with Jim Beheim again. When you do, please ask him about the coaching job at Syracuse. Yes, before he replaced Roy Danforth as the basketball coach, he was the golf coach. Did they use orange balls in the snow? When you discuss the possibility of the Nats setting a record for the greatest last-to-first season ever. Well, I am a homer. Ask Tim Kirchin why, when he played basketball at WJ for 25 years on Thursday nights, with the game on the line, he would pass to the worst shooter on the court, me. Barney Shapiro with a long Shapiro for the long, the retired former actually paid trash man to the Tony Kornheiser show. Well, to chat. Yeah, they did trash. Yeah, that was great. Oh, it's a save the day. Good for him. Good for him. One in a million. In my senior year at Rutgers in New Brunswick, New Jersey, I tutored in math to earn some extra money since I'd gotten married that summer. Most were on-campus students, but one was older and lived an hour away in North Jersey. We agreed to meet on Saturdays at his mother-in-law's place, which is about halfway between us. One time he was late, so I had coffee with his mother-in-law. She mentioned she grew up in Jersey City. I mentioned that the father of the woman I was then related to by marriage had also grown up in Jersey City. She asked his name. I told her. Then she asked, does he have a sister named Phyllis? I said, yes. Did she marry a man named Nick? Again, I said yes. Then she said, I dated Nick before he married (laughs) Phyllis. Okay. Okay. Uh, From Andrew Herman. I'm not a numbers guy. Rather, I'm a lawyer who briefly worked for the incomparable Abby Lowell. But I'm pretty sure that the ABCD birthday calculations are wrong. According to math, or maths, as Nigel would say, the the birthday paradox reveals that in a random group of 23 golfers, there's about a 50-50 chance that two of them will share a birthday. Don't ask me to show my work. I don't know the total number of golfers in the pool, but with 60... The chances of two sharing a birthday is close to 100%. Like I said, I'm no math expert, but it seems like the odds of four people sharing a birthday in one group is small, but it is not astronomical. From Gary Pitts in Knoxville, Tennessee, on Wednesday's episode, you read an email from Tony Ann Maynard, in which she invited you and Michael to join her husband and son for a round of golf at the Burlington Country Club. You should go. I don't know the Maynards, nor do I have any connection to the Burlington Country Club, but I did drive through Vermont once, at which point I discovered Burlington is home to the world's tallest filing cabinet. (laughs) See the attached photo. If the post is not already taken, can I be the official guy who took a selfie in front of the world's tallest filing cabinet? Gary Pitts, Knoxville, Tennessee. P.S. It's not that tall. By the way, Michael, I think the town that we played golf in was Shrewsbury. I'll look it up. You know, all the way up in the northern border. Again, I remember that Ken- first hole where I cranked it left, never yeah. found it. Is that um, called the Northern Neck? From Kevin, I don't know, from Kevin Baylow, rhymes with halo, from Grove City, Ohio. Chuck Culpepper and his colleagues were right that the tournament games in Columbus had the best stories. Therefore, I am certain he looked into the most important story in all of central Ohio. Can you find out when he is running his column on the Africa Road construction in Galena? Yeah, that's a big one. And from Steve Tabor in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Thought you should know I traded in my Subaru for a different make. After the purchase, I was asked to complete a survey about my purchase experience. One of the questions was, when did you side decide- decide to trade vehicles at this time. Why did you decide to trade vehicles at this time? I wrote to get Tony Kornheiser off my back. Are we good now? <laughs> if you're out on your bike time, everybody always do wear white. Yeah, here's the thing. We're not the Wonders right now. There's are. Our... Beach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever thought when you
5: driving down the street each person and each a. Own problems, own passions, own